Thanks to Securaport, presenting sponsor of the Global Startup Movement's podcast miniseries on a pulse check of the global startup ecosystem in the wake of the coronavirus. Visit Securaport.com right now to check out their suite of intelligent immigration and civil aviation security solutions and services, including their epidemic control system, which has the capability of registering all travelers that have been exposed to the virus to help ensure its tracking and reduction in its transmission. This is an independent Global Startup Movement LLC production, and the opinions expressed by me, the host, and our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinion of our presenting sponsor, Securaport. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz, and part two of this mini-series features the investor perspective on what's happening right now in the global startup ecosystem, and includes a conversation I recorded back during the first week of May with Sean O'Sullivan, the managing partner at SOSV as well as Tian Wong, the CEO at Opus 8. Hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm, I'm Sean O'Sullivan. I'm with SOSV. We are one of the world's most active investors. We invest in 150 new startups every year through our accelerator programs. And we have around $700 million in assets under management. So we invest around $65, $75 million a year in these new companies, as well as following on into startups that graduated our accelerators. About half of our staff is actually in Asia and mostly in China, and the other half are U.S. and Europe. And has this whole pandemic changed your strategy and vision in the long run? Or, and, and like with the startups that are in your programs, is this something that you think it's just a matter of adjust to the new normal right now, survive, and we'll get back to the business as usual after this? Or do you think this is something where it's like everything has changed, you have to adapt to whatever you know, yeah. the new normal is going to look like? There's no question this is an inflection point for humanity. Everyone is going through this at this moment in time. Everyone is changing how we think about our societies in general and the importance of every member of our societies and the different roles that, that uh, people have. I think, you know, we're, we can, I think are all so grateful to the, all the players who many times we would be ignoring and all the different elements that we've never spent any time thinking about. I mean, not that many people other than if you're in the life sciences area, think about the CDC or, or frankly, not that many people think about what a nurse or a doctor and uh, the risk that they, that they go through or, or the, frontline workers that are getting infected at, at grocery stores and food processing plants, et cetera. We are so integrally connected that I think part of this is, I think, a humanistic change that I hope people will rally behind. And also, I hope that people will recognize that this is one planet throughout all of this as well, that we are all in this together, all fighting against this condition that we can all be of service and all be of help to each other. So I think that that is sort of an underpinning element. But, you know, in terms of the industries that SOSV is in, and we go in deep tech and, and hardware and life sciences, we have seen that a lot of our companies have been able to pivot to be able to really help and address the COVID-19 challenge directly with new uh, therapeutics, with new small molecules, with diagnostics and rolling these out so that society can restart. So we have, we, we basically have a few things that I think everyone throughout the entire industry is, is throughout 
the world is thinking about how can we do something relevant in this COVID-19 timeframe. And then beyond that may be one of the biggest recessions we've ever seen. It's going to get really ugly with all these repercussions, all the department stores, all the physical uh, you know, facilities that are all closing down, the, the long recuperation time that it's going to take, restaurants, you know, there are going to be many, many, many millions of businesses that will not reopen. So does that create opportunity? I'm sure it probably does. It's not clear what that opportunity is. What, it, what is for sure absolutely clear is it's creating a lot of suffering right now. How can we deal with that suffering and how can we help? Uh, you know, I think those that can do must do. Those that have the ability to, uh, to help in any way have got to figure out how they can help. And so you know, we've had companies that were doing 3D printed organs that are now doing antibody therapeutics because, because that's a, an application. They weren't really focused on it, but it's an applic- application where they can go to immediate use and protect the frontline workers with three months of, of uh, immunity against the COVID uh, uh, 19 uh, or SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, the the whole you know the whole opportunity set for everyone is um, has got to be reevaluated in light of the current day and the current you know the, the change in physical circumstances. We ourselves at a, as SOSV, we strongly believe and still believe in the power of a community. And that's why we have, you know, our generally our facilities are between 15 and, and 45,000 square feet of co-working spaces in Shenzhen or in San Francisco or in New York, where we have hundreds of entrepreneurs that will be working together and, and uh, learning from each other, bringing in mentors, bringing in investors to those sort of vibrant hubs. Um, that has to be replaced um, in today's world. And we are... We are doing that, and um, you know we have the benefit of having assembled these thousands of mentors that have helped, that are experts in these areas, that we can just sort of retool to being doing Zoom, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, panels and and do do things that uh, are sharing the cohort um, of people all connecting virtually um, and trying to connect investors in that, those virtual settings. But yeah, I mean, so th- there's this sort of pre-COVID time, there's the COVID time, and there's the post-virus you know, virus, uh, era. And I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's knowable what the post-virus era looks like. I think the first thing we have to do is minimize the, uh, the destruction, and not just the deaths that are coming from COVID, but also, as I was describing, you know, you and I chatted just before this interview, we even have one of our partners got COVID-19, was, did get his mother-in-law died uh, from it, living in the same household. His wife was infected, but he he got into the ICU and he has a uh, he he uh, he's back at home, so he's survived. But he has a very very severe, possibly lifetime disability at this point because he's not able to breathe uh, in the way that you'd hope. And I don't know how how long it will take to recover or if he'll be able to recover. He cannot go up and down the stairs. He's he without stopping. I don't mean, mean to sound all gloom and doom. We actually have a number of things that we're working on that could effectively end the threat of COVID-19 in a short period of time. But I don't anticipate that even if it is ended in even before the vaccines, that life is going to go back to normal, uh, you know, after, after it. Sean, is there anything else that you wanted to cover today that, that we didn't cover? 
Well, I, like in general, I guess I, I'd just say, um, you know, uh, I think startups are agents of change. I think hope is here and help is on the way. Uh, startups are actually doing remarkable things. We have startups that are rolling out massive uh, testing capabilities that that will dwarf. I mean, people are saying, oh, we need to have two or three times what the capacity is for testing in the United States. I think that's bullshit. I think we need about 20 or 50 times as much uh, testing capacity. And fortunately, we have startups that are, are bringing us that capacity that we're, we're helping back and connecting with all the uh, you know, governmental uh, players in order to help scale them up. I think we also have to be... All, all that really needs to happen to get over this is to have this stop being such a fatal uh, disease. Like if we could actually make it so that it does not create lifelong disability or death uh, by having decent, uh, there's six or seven different ways you can do that, uh, that I'm aware of, that I can think of in terms of, you know, uh, small molecule therapeutics, antibody therapies, you know, ways of blocking the virus, uh, you know, antivirals. Uh, there's, there's just a number of different uh, things that can be done and can be done quickly before the second wave starts. I mean, we haven't, we're not even past the first wave. Uh, we're just in the middle of it. And depending on how people open up, the, the first, this first wave could be unbelievably, unbelievably damaging. Mm. Um, but uh, if we keep locking it down, by the time the second wave comes around, I think we could actually have solutions that make uh, COVID-19 non-fatal and non, not to the point where it can create, uh, not create a lifelong disability. So that will make all the difference. So I don't know how the, I don't know how uh, this is all going to play out. Uh, but I do know that there are the whole world's energies are focused on trying to make this happen. And to that extent, it's a really wonderful thing to see that much focus addressing an issue and to see so many solutions popping up. There really will be many solutions to this if we just have a little bit of time to do it. What's the first thing you're going to do after lockdown? First thing I'm going to do after lockdown ends. You can't, you can't say get a haircut. Oh yeah. You know, I just not, I'm not even worried about it. Like I'm actually a little bit happy for lockdown because normally I'm on the road 50% of the time traveling to Asia or to, you know, California or Canada or Europe or whatever. And so I get to spend a little bit more time with my family uh, now than I uh, had before. So I'm kind of enjoying a little bit of the lockdown. Uh, so yeah, no, I get, I mean, what I'll do instantly after lockdown is I'll, I'll, I'll meet all the new companies that we've, we've backed that I, I've only met virtually uh, up until that moment. Normally I go yeah. around, I'm meeting all 150 companies that we back every year in person. And now it's just via, via Zoom or whatever. So I know for me, it's, it's been an inappropriate amount of time since I've last got my haircut. So that, that's certainly top of the list for me. Um, oh, you're looking fine, man. You're looking fine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good luck uh, to you and all the and all the startup community that's listening. Let's just be as relevant as we can, as helpful as we can, and we will get through this. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sean. Thank you.
Hi, my name is Tian Wong. I'm CEO of Opus 8, which is an investment and advisory firm. We invest in early stage companies and we also help early stage companies and investment funds raise capital through our network of ultra high net worth and high net worth investors and family offices. In your Twitter bio, you list yourself as an entrepreneur, CEO, investor, and executive mentor. And so before we really get into things, can you kind of unpack for us why you chose to distinguish between uh, entrepreneur and CEO? And in your mind, what are the biggest difference of, of of those two things? Well, I'm an entrepreneur because whether I'm involved in a not-for-profit or a for-profit enterprise or a startup company or in life in general, I take an entrepreneur's approach to solving problems and creating value for our customers and our stakeholders. So, you know, we use creativity and resourcefulness to get the job done. I'm the CEO because I've run companies as large as 2,300 employees, 80 million in revenue. Um, So really both. Not every CEO is an entrepreneur and not every entrepreneur is a CEO either. I mean, they could be a CEO of a small one or two or 10 company, 10 person company, which is true. They are a CEO, but they're not leading a larger organization. So having been both an entrepreneur and a CEO, you know, what do you feel is different about navigating a team of say 10 to 15 uh, versus a company of 2300 through a serious market downturn or something like we're seeing with the virus? So when you're leading a small team, it's basically a team of, it's like a small platoon or a tight tiger team or a SEAL team where you have, you know, a tight knit group of 10 or so people and they kind of do a little bit of everything and they're very interdependent and they help each other. They have a common mission and the lines of communication are pretty lean. When you run an organization like the company I had, 2,300 employees, you have layers of management, you have a lot of specialization. And to get from 10 to 2,300 employees, you have to go through a lot of steps. You know, you go from 10 to 25 to 50 to 100 to 200 to 500 to 1,000. And every time you hit these milestones, there's a whole new set of challenges, there's a whole new set of process reengineering that has to happen. Um, You have to bring in new talent. You lose some of your existing talent. So people that are outstanding in smaller organizations sometimes can't make the leap to a larger organization. And conversely, some people that come from larger organizations can't fit in a really lean and mean entrepreneurial environment. So the quality of the talent is definitely a function of where the company is at any given point in time. With respect to the virus, I think it's affecting everybody, um, small, medium, and large, in the sense that It is accelerating forces that were already at play, whether they are global forces such as the shift towards digitization across the enterprise or the deployment of telecommunications and technology that was already in play that, you know, that is now required in order to operate in today's environment. And it's also causing small, medium and large organizations to look at the things that they had been doing that don't make sense, that they should jettison, that they should stop doing. So I think like any other major shift and any other major any other major effects on a business, you have to assess at that point and try to figure out where this is going to lead in the future with respect to taking care of your customer. So 
small, medium, and large companies all face the same, roughly the same challenges, and how they address those challenges is totally different because they're, you know, they're, they're the size. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think the great unifier in terms of crucial challenge everyone is facing right now is just digital transformation. This whole virus is creating very specific opportunities in the world of startups and tech. And I'd be curious to hear from you, how have you seen the Mid-Atlantic's kind of startup investing appetite adapt and change as we've progressed through the virus? Some deals are getting funded. The deals that were in the hopper starting Q4 of last year to early Q1 of this year are getting funded. I've heard or I've seen several deals that have gotten done at lower valuations. Uh, this goes for M&A deals as well, but also for you know seed stage, A, A and B stage uh, growth tech companies. So deals are getting done. Every investor I've spoken to is quote unquote still in the market. Whether they're pulling the trigger and writing checks is a whole nother matter. I don't think they are as active as they would like everyone to think, but they say that they are active. They are looking at deals. I think that the funnel... Our funnel has probably doubled in terms of the number of opportunities that are available to us. And I think that's a function of, you know, the entrepreneurs not getting enough traction with some of the investors they're speaking to now, as well as the fact that there's just more opportunities out there. People are coming up with new and novel ideas. They're pivoting their businesses and they are looking for capital to grow. I think macro wise, you know, we're going to see a deflation of assets and deflation of valuation um, on the early stage, it starts with the stock market and the credit markets and flows to the private equity markets. And you're seeing lower leverage, you know, tighter credit, bigger spreads, higher rates, and that affects valuation. And the PE market has an influence on the on the VC market, as you guys know. So um, it, it's just basically trickle down. So I think valuations are going to get hit 25, 30, 35, 40 percent, maybe even. Um, over time. And then depending on the industry that these companies are in, some of the in, these companies are in industries that are serving some of the really battered sectors, travel, hospitality, retail. I don't know if they're going to get deals, get financed basically because there's a lot of uncertainty around their sort of revenue projections. I think their traction projections, companies that are a little more steady eddy or that are in spaces like you mentioned earlier that are facilitating the digitization of the economy or connectivity, or helping with training, or e-learning, or workplace management, or Salesforce management, those companies have a good chance to get funded if they're outstanding. So it's real. The answer is it depends. <laughs> I just, I learned actually from Chris Schroeder a few, a, a couple months ago, that at the start of this year, only 11% of all commerce in the US was e-commerce. So, you know, I, I think we, a lot of us that are in the tech bu bubble kind of underestimate or overestimate how much, you know, internet has kind of changed things. But now we're at a point where a lot of problems we've kicked the can down the road on are kind of coming to a front that we have to face. What the internet has been doing over time is now kind of hit, hit a point and hit an infection point where all, we all have to adapt now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree 100%. I mean, now we're, we're in... Basically, the virus has accelerated everything. All the forces that have been in play are now tectonically shift, shifted. So 100% agree. You know, you're seeing a massive acceleration. And then it'll lead to adoption. And then obviously, the stuff becomes mainstream. And it's just a new new. It's a new way of doing business now. And so if there are entrepreneurs that are listening right now that might be at uh, you know, a corporate job or a startup and they're looking for their next thing, what do you think are the sectors that 
are most exciting now? You know, if you were starting a company and something from scratch, where would you put your time? Would it be into online, you know, virtual event software? I hear a lot of people talking about building stuff for the Zoom app marketplace. A lot of opportunities as, as new platforms emerge, but, but where's your, um, what's exciting you right now? Every time you see a big recession happen, the last one being in 08 and uh, the prior one being in around the turn of the century, uh, you are seeing lots of entrepreneurs and lots of ideas come out of the woodwork and get funded and wind up succeeding. And I think that there's always opportunity when there's a downturn in the economy. So, I mean, the logical ones are, as you just mentioned, you know, facilitating telework, facilitating communication, security, helping companies recruit, retain, train people. That's huge. E-learning, telework technology, you know, those areas are obvious. And I think that, um, you know, first and foremost, if it's a startup, the investor community is going to back the team. So I don't think that fundamental of early stage investing will ever change is that you are backing a team and you know that this team is going to be pivoting. They're going to be shucking and driving as market forces change. And you're betting on resilient people who have the creativity and flexibility to to pivot when necessary. I mean, every great company has had multiple pivots. Every single one, Amazon, Facebook, just get on the list, Google. So in order for a company to become great, it's got to survive by pivoting. And that is a function of the entrepreneurs that found the company. So I think that there's money to be made in almost every field, including travel and hospitality and retail, retail. It's going to be just basically finding ways to do things cheaper, better and faster, differently, you know, more efficiently. You know, I think when we get to the other side of COVID, whether it's six months, a year or two years or three years from now, those types of companies that are setting new paradigms and framing new ways of doing business are going to be the winners. So I don't think there's a sector that that's that's um, off limits as an investor, really, if you have a long term view. If you have a six-month view, of course, you're not going to invest in certain sectors. But if you have a long-term view, everything's up for grabs, I think. Well, Tien, I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Be safe out there. Thanks to Secure Report, presenting sponsor of the Global Startup Movement's podcast miniseries on a pulse check of the global startup ecosystem in the wake of the coronavirus. Visit SecureReport.com right now to check out SecureReport's suite of intelligent immigration and civil aviation security solutions and services, including their epidemic control system, which has the capability of registering all travelers that have been exposed to the coronavirus to help ensure its tracking and reduction in its transmission. 